Welcome to the official podcast of the Milwaukee Brewers. This is Brewers on Tap. Here's the pitch. A Time to tap the keg with Lane Grindle. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 125 from Miami. As the Brewers and Marlins getting ready tonight to wrap up a three-game series, they've split the first two games. It's been quite a week for the crew since we last talked. They finished off a sweep of the Twins. Then they take three of four from the Atlanta Braves, one of the other real talks of the National League, and the Brewers take it to them. At Miller Park, and they finish off a six-in-one homestand at Miller Park over this past week. And then the crew, of course, uh, coming down here to Miami. They've split the first two games of this series with the Marlins, and then they'll head off to Pittsburgh for five games heading into the All-Star break. So a lot of baseball. This was a stretch of 21 games in 20 days for the crew. They have survived it very well so far. They've played great baseball through this stretch so far. Let's see if they can keep it going and keep that momentum rolling right in to the All-Star break. Speaking of the All-Star game and the All-Star break, uh, you know that we're going to talk a lot about that today on the podcast. As the Brewers, three All-Stars named earlier this week, outfielders Christian Yelich and Lorenzo Cain, and lefty reliever Josh Hader. A fourth, Jesus Aguilar, in the final man vote. That's why... If you're listening to this this morning, if you're listening to this before 3 o'clock Central Time on Wednesday, and many of you probably are, you need to go vote. Every free second you have, go vote for Jesus Aguilar. Go to brewers.com slash vote. It's very, very easy. The Brewers have made it as simple as possible for you. Go vote as many times as you can. There is no limit. Keep voting. Aguilar was in the lead in the final man vote as of Tuesday afternoon, and it's important that you keep him in it. Aguilar has the best numbers of any of the other candidates. I'm not even going to mention their names because they haven't earned it. Jesus Aguilar has earned the right to go to the All-Star game, so vote him in. Also, still kind of crossing our fingers, hoping that potentially there could be another All-Star named uh, because there could be some injury. Sean Doolittle of the Nationals went on the DL uh, yesterday. If there are other guys that choose not to participate in the All-Star game from a relief pitcher standpoint, you would have to think Jeremy Jeffress would also be on that short list of potentially getting a call. So right now, three All-Stars, hoping later today a fourth will be named to the team in Jesus Aguilar, and then, hopefully, somehow, Jeremy Jeffress can find his way to Washington, D.C., because he's had a season becoming of an all-star as well. Here's what the standings look like right now. The crew continuing to play good baseball. They have won seven out of their last ten. In fact, they've won seven out of their last nine, if you want to be more specific. They are now a season-high 18 games above 555 and 37. They have a real shot to be 20 games over 500 at the all-star break, which would be an absolutely incredible feat for this team if they can do that. They are a game and a half up on the Chicago Cubs who are behind them at 52-37. and 37. That's also the next best record in the National League. So the Brewers and Cubs have the two best records right now in the National League. The Cardinals follow the Cubs. They are seven games back of the Brewers. Pittsburgh, remember Pittsburgh, they were right in the mix for the first two months of this season. They had a tough month of June. 
they are now 42 and 49. So they are now seven games below 500. They're 12 and a half games out, and they better watch out because the Reds are coming. The Reds have been playing very, very well. They're just 10 games below 500 now. They've won seven out of their last 10, and they are 14 games back in the NL Central. The other teams atop their divisions in the NL. The Diamondbacks have a game and a half lead on the Dodgers at 51 and 41, and the Phillies have, currently have a game up lead on the Braves. They're 51 and 39, the Braves 50 and 40. So some good races all across the board in the National League. It's going to be an exciting second half to the season for sure. Here's what we have for you. We're going to change gears a little bit on Brewers on Tap today. We're going to talk to Patrick Steele. He's the author of Home of the Braves. It's a very good book that uh, uh, I'm in the process of finishing up right now. It talks about the journey of Major League Baseball to Milwaukee and then, of course, how quickly it left uh, with the Milwaukee Braves moving in from Boston and then, of course, heading to Atlanta, winning the World Series in 57, losing the World Series in 58, uh, everything that went on behind the scenes. It's a really good book. I would encourage you to read it. And we're going to talk to Patrick Steele about this book coming up today in the podcast. Also, last week we had Jesus Aguilar on the podcast. He's in the final man vote. I had a chance to talk to him about it. He's going to make an encore appearance with us this week on the podcast as well. It's really pretty amazing. Um, very rarely would a guy get on the podcast two weeks in a row, but he goes on the podcast. He tears it up last week, has a huge week. So we're going to give him that karma again, and we're going to see if we can get him into the All-Star game uh, later on today. And uh, we'll also talk to Chase Anderson, who is pitching very well for the crew right now. I had a chance to catch up with him after his last start at Miller Park and uh, before his start on Monday in Miami. And we'll talk to Chase Anderson as well. So that's all coming up. There's some news from a minor league side of things, so we're going to check in on the farm as well. We're going to go behind the numbers on what Jesus Aguilar has done this year in Sabermetrics 101. This is a big edition of Brewers on Tap, and we hope that you'll stay with us. All right, let's dive into the book review, if you will, with the author of Home of the Braves, Patrick Steele. Let's break it down. As we continue on Brewers on Tap, uh, a new book out called Home of the Braves, The Battle for Baseball in Milwaukee. It is authored by Patrick Steele, and we're lucky enough to be joined by him. I think anybody that has spent time uh, in this city, in this state, they understand the love affair that was there between the city of Milwaukee and really the region and the Milwaukee Braves and the heartbreak when they left. But you really dive into this, and, and you ask a lot of questions, and you get a lot of answers on what really went wrong that led the Braves to leave Milwaukee and go to Atlanta? And, and it's really fascinating. But I want to ask you first, because I think any, any book like this is inspired by something. What was it that led you? This all happened before you were born. What was it that led you to say, okay, I, I really want to dig into this and I want to find some answers? I'm sure it probably, I know you talk about in the book that you, you had family members that you looked at and they were so emotional and even bitter about it that that kind of piqued your interest. Was that the, the sole motivation for you to try to find out more about this? Well, that was one of the starting points. You know, uh, my mom was a huge Braves fan. She talks about, you know, coming out for ladies' days here, and um, she can still talk about the players and things that they did. And, you know, she taught, she listened to, you know, uh, Earl Gillespie and, and Blaine Walsh calling games for years and just really loved the team. And, you know, I could see the hurt in her eyes when we talked about it. You know, I have a story in the book where I was a little boy and, you know, saw a picture of Henry Aaron, who's my all-time favorite player, and he had an M on his cap, and I just remember asking her, why's he got an M on his hat? And she said, well, they used to be here in Milwaukee, you know, and um, 
and like I've told other people, I mean, you know, so that that's part of it. But you know, the big thing was when Bob Beagie's book came out, you know, the Milwaukee Braves of Baseball eulogy back in '88. Um, you know, really triggered my fascination with this team, with the club. And, and Bob does such a great job talking about the you know the team on the field. I really wanted to answer the questions other. And I've told Bob, and I'm really grateful he wrote the forward to it, that my book is the second part to his. He covered the on the field, I covered yeah. the off the field. And, and, and that's true because you, you get into the business of it, you get into the the civics of it, if you will, and the the different political things that went back and forth. What was the thing that surprised you the most that you learned about this whole situation between the Braves and the city of Milwaukee that maybe you didn't know going in? Well, I, I think it was the level of animosity between between the county in particular and, and the organization. And, you know, the biggest shocker was how much they were paying to use County Stadium. Uh, when you sit and realize that, you know, by you know, 64, you know, the Braves were paying more to use County Stadium than any other team was using to play in their facilities. You know, when the Braves left, I mean, they took the grills, they took the tongs for the, you know, for the sausages, they dug out home plate, They because they had to buy all this stuff and put it in the stadium. I mean, it's just unheard of today. Um, that was shocking, the fact that they didn't make a dime of parking lot revenue. From 1953 to 1965, they made nothing off of parking lots, yet they were required to maintain them, keep up the lights, the maintenance, all that other stuff, and they didn't receive a dime from it. The, the move to Milwaukee was an interesting storyline un, into itself. Uh, the Boston Braves, they were not drawing, and Luke Perini, the owner, a lot of struggles being the second team in a city with the Red Sox, of course, being in Boston. But then there was all sorts of other maneuverings. Bill Beck wanted to bring the St. Louis Browns to Milwaukee. A lot of people thought that was going to happen at one point. People thought the Cardinals might come to Milwaukee. And that's something that I think is probably lost on a lot of people. Maybe they don't re either realize that or they didn't live in that time, so they, they haven't heard about some of those different inner workings between the franchises. But it got very political, and that's really why Lou Perini ended up getting his way and getting the Braves here in the first place, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, um, the, the horrible attendance they had in Boston was one of his triggers. But, you know, he really hoped that he could save it. He knew he had some uh, some guys coming. I mean, Eddie Matthews was a rookie, you know, in 52. He knew he had some good guys coming up through AAA, the, the minor league Milwaukee Brewers that were here. Um, he had, obviously, some veteran pitchers, you know, including Hall of Famer Warren Spahn. And he always felt that if he had 53, he could have he could have turned it around in Boston. You know, thank goodness for baseball in Milwaukee, that didn't happen yeah. because, you know, again, our entire history with Major League Baseball would be different had he not made that decision to move here. But his hand was really pushed by Bill Vec. You know, Vec had been uh, the minor league Brewers owner uh, back in the 1940s before the team was sold um, to, to a guy from Chicago, eventually turned around and sold it to, to Perini. But, you know, um, Vec had a phenomenal relationship with the city of Milwaukee, with, with uh, Milwaukee County in general and really wanted to bring the St. Louis Browns technically back home because they were originally the Milwaukee Brewers, the major league team from 1901. Yeah, that's the other thing is I, I don't know if a lot of people my generation realize that the Baltimore Orioles really were in Milwaukee at one point in time, clear back in 1901, before they went to St. Louis and became the Browns. And then, of course, uh, a little after the Boston Braves moved to Milwaukee, the, the St. Louis Browns eventually got their wish and moved out and, and went to Baltimore. So this got off to such an incredible start parades and sellout crowds and just this love affair between the city and the organization or at least the fans in the organization we can certainly say that where did it start going wrong without giving away too much because we want people to go out and read your book but where did where did it start going wrong and how should it have been redone if they could go back and do it over again 
Well, you know, it's it's hard to say where it went wrong because there, you know, there's so many opportunities along the way to save, you know, baseball in Milwaukee that people didn't even realize. You know, probably the first thing going wrong was, you know, not televising any games. You know, they they really didn't understand the meaning of television. You know, back in the day, I think certainly that had an impact on it. They certainly lost out on revenues that way. Um, I think expectations became too high. And it came too easy. You know, Lou Perini later said, you know, the problem with the Braves in Milwaukee was it came too easy, attendance and success on the field. Um, it probably would have been better if they would have come, maybe struggled for the first couple years, and then slowly started to build some leverage. So you would have had a natural settling effect of the attendance. But, you know, you talk about all the teams that move. You know, the, the Braves, when they move, um, you know, they were good. They got good right away, and they, they maintained that for a while, and so attendance was really artificially high. And I think that also led to expectations that attendance was always going to be that way, and we certainly know attendance fluctuates. You know, you look at some of the ballparks today, you know, that, that look partially empty when you're sitting there watching a game on television or when you're there in person. We know there's ebbs and flows. And I think people just simply expected because it started out so good in Milwaukee, you know, drawing more than $2 million, you know, within their first couple of years that it was always going to be that way, and that just simply wasn't the case. So that's probably the biggest thing that went wrong. We're talking with Patrick Steele. He's the author of Home of the Braves, The Battle for Baseball in Milwaukee, and we're talking about the Braves moving to Milwaukee and then, of course, eventually moving on to Atlanta. That was the first move or transfer, if you will, in Major League Baseball in about 50 years. And it seems like that really set off some inspiration for other teams to start um, looking for better opportunities, looking for new stadiums, better profit type of opportunities. And there's a lot of movement in baseball over the subsequent years. Uh, do you think that was the move that inspired it as, as you look into it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there, there's no doubt, you know, um, you know, one of the reasons why the Dodgers ultimately moved to Los Angeles was, you know, Walter O'Malley just simply believed that in Brooklyn he couldn't compete without a new stadium uh, with what Milwaukee was doing. You know, he looked at, you know, County Stadium, and, and he didn't understand the dynamics of the park, you know, that the Braves weren't getting any of the parking lot revenue. But, you know, as, as he looked at the grand picture, he saw the attendance. He saw a team that was drawing 280000 to up over $2 million. I mean, it was phenomenal and more fans means more revenue, more scouts, right? More support for your minor league system means a better team overall. And so the, the, the thought was for him and other play or other owners that if we can find the next Milwaukee, you know, and I have the story, you know, in the book where I talk about, um, Charlie O'Finley and, you know, his approach to trying to get the Kansas City Athletics out of, you know, Kansas City, go somewhere else. And, you know, some of the owners just believe, look, Hey, we can always make more baseball fans. You know, you might be a diehard here, but if we go over, the, you know, to the next city, we go to Louisville, we can get a whole new generation of fans. Fans are replaceable, ultimately. The, the World Series in 57, how did that change things in your eyes? Well, it created a lot of expectations of success. You know, um, coming out of 56, they missed the series by a game. You know, they go in 57, they win it in seven games. You know, little Milwaukee against mighty New York. They go again in 58, they lose in seven games. Um, and then 59, they lose in a playoff you know, to the Dodgers. And I, I, I think that because the World Series came so quickly, you know, they came in 53 and they're world champions by 57, that the expectations were that the team was always going to be that good. And when you couldn't maintain it, I think that's really where you start to see. And um, I, I've told other people the story, you know, it's easier to be a third place team when you're coming from sixth place versus when, you know, to be a third place team when you drop down from first. And that was some of the dynamics that they were dealing with. Patrick, do you sense, too, that the expectations were so high because of the success that came so quickly, but also that 
with those expectations, the other part of it is you're starting to build some tradition, some heritage with all of this success in the city. Was there an element of taking that for granted from the city as well, saying, look, they're entrenched here now, even though it had been relatively quick that it all happened? Oh, absolutely. I think any time that you have um, something come here and show that type of success that early, you simply presume it's always going to be there. Um, but certainly we know now that's not the case. It doesn't always happen, you know. Um, you know, when you think back to 1957, you know, the, the world champs, if anybody would have walked up to fans, you know, um, of the Braves that season said, hey, you know what, within eight years this team's going to be looking to go somewhere else. Everybody would have been shocked that that would have yeah. even been been uttered. But, you know, I think complacency becomes part of it. I think the other thing is, and the dynamics are a little bit different, you know, had everything happened 10 years earlier, 10 years later, the Braves might still be here. You know, what happened in 59, the Packers, you know, hire Vince Lombardi, mm -hmm. and it turns that around. And the takeoff of the NFL and the American Football League as well, you know, in the 1960s, but particularly here in Wisconsin, it knocked the Braves off the front page. I mean, people are shocked when you say, you know, look, in the 1950s, more people were Braves fans in Wisconsin than they were Packer fans because the Packers were terrible um, and the Braves were good. Well, here comes Green Bay out of nowhere with Lombardi in 59, turns it around, and what happens? Press coverage starts to shift from the Braves to the Packers. Uh, the fan attention, the younger generation, that next generation coming through, become more football fans than than baseball fans and so you have a settling of the attendance maybe taking it for granted maybe simply expectations aren't being met maybe our interests are somewhere else but that next generation wanted football and you could could you find a better place for football in the 1960s than here in Wisconsin the interesting conclusion as well is that we all know the Braves end up moving to Atlanta and if that hadn't happened the Brewers wouldn't be here in Milwaukee today but the second part to that is that bitter end, if you will, does that inspire Bud Selig to go out and fight so hard to bring the Brewers to Milwaukee uh, if the Braves never came to Milwaukee in the first place? I mean, we'll never know the answer to that, but that's, that's kind of an interesting side story to this at the end. Oh, absolutely. You know, um, you know, you think back to when the whole debate over Miller Park was being done and, you know, when there was a switch of a vote to get the, the bill passed through um, to actually find the funding to do this. You know, I think Bud Selig in many ways was in Lou Perini's shoes. He didn't want to take the team anywhere else. He wanted to be here. He was a Milwaukee guy. He loves this area. He's a diehard. But economically, the team wasn't going to make it in County Stadium anymore. Um, and I think he kind of knew it. And if that vote wouldn't have turned around, if we wouldn't be sitting in this beautiful ballpark, you know, I, we, we might be sitting in an empty parking lot wondering what went wrong there as well. Um, but I, I think in the grand scheme of things, Selig's fight to, to save baseball in Milwaukee first with the Braves and then to go find another team, um, you know, in, in my opinion, borders on heroic um, because he didn't have to do that. You know, um, he, he fought for fans like me who weren't there for the Braves. He fought for fans like my, chi my children who weren't there uh, when this was all going on. He fought for fans eventually like my granddaughter who will grow up with a team here in Milwaukee that wouldn't have been here without the ferocity of Bud Selig. Well, Patrick, we appreciate it. Uh, we would encourage all baseball fans uh, in Milwaukee and in the region, and that's the other part of this book that I didn't mention is it really outlines very well, too, how – I mean, look, this is a different Major League Baseball back then. There were fans from Minnesota. There were fans uh, from eastern Iowa. There were fans from beyond just the state of Wisconsin. 
that were big Braves fans back in the, the, the 50s and the early 60s. But uh, we would encourage baseball fans to go out and read this book, Home of the Braves, The Battle for Baseball in Milwaukee by Patrick Steele. It's an outstanding read, and we would encourage you to go out and get your hands on it. Thank you for giving us some time, Patrick. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Let's crunch the numbers in Sabermetrics 101. Okay, it's time to go inside the numbers on Sabermetrics 101 on Jesus Aguilar's monstrous 2018 season that he's put together. Currently hitting 302 with 23 home runs and 64 driven in. His OPS sits at an even 1,000. That is unbelievable, and you're not going to find another guy that has played as much as Jesus Aguilar with those kind of numbers this year. We're talking about him deserving to get in on the final man vote. Well, he he's more deserving than just about any actual all-star that got on the ballot in the first place. Aguilar, let's, let's revisit 2017. He played in 133 games, but a lot of those were as a pinch hitter. He got 279 at-bats in 2017. Um... And in that amount of time, he hit 16 home runs and drove in 52. He has done more with less at-bats this year, but that doesn't mean he didn't have a great 2017 season. The more and more you look at what he did in 2017, the more you appreciate just how good Jesus Aguilar is, and the more thankful you are, of course, that the Brewers just found a way to force him onto the roster again this year and keep him around. He had an on-base percentage of 331 last year. He slugged at a 505 clip. He had an OPS of 837. In 2017, they bring him back and in 81 games played. So it's a true half season sample right now for Jesus Aguilar. 252 at bats. He is hitting 302, 23 home runs, and 64 driven in. So he is on pace for almost 130 RBIs. He is on pace for 46 home runs. And you could really argue maybe even a little bit more because, again, some of these out performances early in the season were as a pinch hitter or as a replacement later in games because he wasn't a regular until the end of April. It's pretty unbelievable. And I know we use that term a lot. We throw it around a ton with Jesus Aguilar. He is becoming one of the great stories in baseball. And the other number for Jesus Aguilar is what he's doing with two strikes. Go look at the numbers of what Jesus Aguilar is doing with two strikes and the power he's hitting for with two strikes. About half of his home runs have come when he's had two strikes on him. Think about that. It's really hard to fathom. He is becoming one of the stars in the game in very, very short order. Pretty impressive stuff from Jesus Aguilar. We had a chance to talk to him about the final man vote and how important it would be to him if he could get in. Joined by Brewers first baseman and all-star candidate Jesus Aguilar, a part of the final man vote-in efforts. And, and this has been a busy day for you, Jesus. You're, you're kind of working the phones and, and trying to get that vote out so we can get you to Washington, D.C. Um, you know, uh, it's going to be a, a busy day, but we're here. We try to push, we try to get there. Um, I just feel glad, like, when I start the season, like, I don't got, I mean, I don't got a spot here. And now, see where we are. I just feel like the time is going is perfect. So we got to keep going, keep going. Um, a lot of good things happening right now, so we got to keep pushing. We play, we're playing really good. Um, let's, try to, let's try to join those guys in DC. Even before it was announced that you were going to be a part of the p final man vote, over the last couple of weeks, 
your teammates have been wearing T-shirts that say, we believe in Jesus. They've been tweeting and talking about how you deserve to be in the All-Star game. What did that mean to you over the last couple of weeks to see those guys speak out so loudly in your favor? I just, I just appreciate that. Like, uh, they support me a lot until, like, I don't remember what was. I think was, we was playing with St. Louis with the two homers until that moment that you got to be an All-Star guy and just got to say thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you for that support. Um, you know, like, uh, I, I feel good. I feel good. Like, I got those those guys behind me support me. That's, that's a great feeling. Does it mean even more to you to potentially be in the All-Star game with so many teammates that are already going? Kane, Yelich, and Hayter. How much more would it mean to you to be able to stand with those guys as a part of the National League squad? It's going to be like my dream come true, you know. Uh, be beside those guys, like those superstars, you know, not even like Lolo or Yelich or, or Hayter. Like be around like those guys, like feel those moments. It's going to be great. I just I just want to join those guys there, you know. I just um, It's going to be great. It's going to be perfect. But we got we to go. I mean, we got to keep pushing, keep pushing. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen, but I feel glad for 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 this moment, you know, um, that's that's not under my control. You had some big years in the minors, and I know that you internally felt like, hey, if I get a chance to play every day, I can do this. So I, I don't know how much you're surprising yourself, but what has it meant, and and how big of a deal has it been that you, you for the first time in your career at the major league level, you're having an opportunity to play on an everyday basis. How much is that having to do with your success that you're having right now? It's all about confidence. All about confidence. You know, I'm just. I just prepared myself in the last two sprint training to be an everyday player. Uh, was hard, was kind of different. I know they got like other planes, but the time goes perfect. So uh, I just prepared mentally like, like I can be an everyday player. Why not? If I, if I do it like for I don't know how many years in the minor, uh, nothing changed when you get to the big league, you know? I mean, you got to do it like those little adjustments, but still like the ball got to close, close the home play. That's what I put in my mind. I know, um, until that moment, <coughs> I create like a lot of confidence. <coughs> um, you know, I just go there, try to go there, try to do, try to do my job the right way, and a lot of good things, a lot of good things happening right now. So we gotta keep pushing, man. Sunday at Miller Park uh, against the Braves, you hit two home runs. Huge reaction from the crowd. Of course, you're becoming a fan favorite. Uh, did you kind of soak that in a little bit as you left the ballpark to, to head to Miami? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, uh, I, just gotta, I just gotta say thank you to them. You know, um, they support us, not just me. They support the team. Um, every game you can see like thirty thousand people around us, and that's great. That's great. Um, I don't know what I can say. <laughs> well, let's let's ask you one final question, and that is this effort to get people to vote because that's the whole point of this we want people to go vote for you and get you in to the all-star game and a couple of days to do this until wednesday at three o'clock central that's when the vote ends um obviously we want brewers fans to get out there and do it have you reached out to, to family and friends and everybody else to let them know they they've got to be on their devices and voting as much as possible oh for sure for sure i just gotta appreciate that like like what they why they doing right now it's excellent y'all um um I got so many friends in Venezuela to try to try to push, like try to join those guys in DC. Um, just gotta say thank you, man. Thank you, thank you for that support. Thank you for trying to like bring me to DC. Um, um, let's see what happens. Let's see what happens, um, boy. They, they do like an excellent job. I really appreciate that. Hey Zeus, we appreciate it. Thanks so much, and best of luck. Uh, 
tonight in the game and over the next couple of days as the votes continue to come in. All right, thank you very much. Our thanks to Jesus Aguilar. And again, go to brewers.com slash vote. Vote as many times as you possibly can to get Jesus Aguilar into the All-Star game. We will know later today on the fate of the final man vote efforts. The Brewers have done a great job, by the way, of rolling out a ton of different things to get people motivated to get out there and vote for Jesus Aguilar. Okay, let's go into the clubhouse with Chase Anderson. Uh, I don't consider myself a platoon player right now. I'm still early in my career. I feel like I'm an everyday player. And uh, In 2015, when I got the opportunity to hit against lefties, I did a pretty good job. It's different for everyone. Um, I think every, every hitter has their own plan. But whatever your strong suit is, that should be your plan. Uh, but once I got up, I, it was a little bit of a mentality. It, was, uh, it wasn't pitching to my strengths. It was trying to pitch to the hitter's weaknesses. And that's where guys get caught up in uh, trying to do too much. Now for the clubhouse conversation. Uh, a complete performance from you on the mound. And that's four out of your last five now that you have to walk away from being pleased with are you feeling more comfortable and finally feeling like you're getting some good answers on the mound right now yeah I would say so I think overall I just I'm more consistent with my pitches my deliveries a lot more more uh, in tune um, be able to repeat it better um, and kind of throw the ball where I want to and you know me and Derek Johnson have been working a lot of, on a lot of stuff and he's really uh, he's really helped me out become the pitcher I am and uh, you know we'll just continue to evolve and get better but yeah the last couple starts have been been really good building blocks and just trying to continue that through the all-star break then through the second half Changeup's always been a big pitch for you, and it's something you have a lot of confidence in. But that curveball's been one of the. Everybody talks about your velocity and how you added velocity last year, but I think the emergence of the curveballs also helped you take that next step, and it was really good yesterday. Yeah, I'm just, when I changed the grip in August of 16, when I um, was struggling with that pitch, uh, Derek just, you know, Johnson showed me a new grip. It took me probably the rest of that season to get it right, and then last year kind of it became a pitch for me, and then this year it's, you know, it's been there pretty consistently, I would say, the whole season. So. I'm just thankful that I can have that third pitch. And, uh, you know, when you have three pitches and the cutter's kind of a fourth pitch, so I'd say I'm a four-pitch total guy. But I, I really, you know, want that curveball to be a pitch that I can go out every outing and count on it because it's really going to get be able to get me through that lineup the second, third, fourth time, hopefully. What's the evolution been like for you from year one here in 2016, uh, a team that finished below 500, to now a team like this team that came in with so much expectation, matching that expectation, and you being kind of one of the guys – carrying the flag at the front of the rotation. What has it been like for you um, over these three years? A lot has happened in three years. <laughs> a lot has happened. I feel like I feel like I never was with the Diamondbacks now. It just feels like forever ago. Um, but, you know, I came here with, a, you know, a fastball and a changeup kind of with a curveball every once in a while. And now I have four pitches. Um, the evolution of the curveball and the cutter have been something that's really separated me and kind of take me to that next level. Um, and to be able to pitch deeper into games consistently, um, to give hitters different looks, they can't just cancel out. Because they used to say, okay, I can't throw as fast as first strike, throw a lot of changeups today, and I can sit on the changeup. Now they can't sit on the pitch. Um, and that makes, it, that makes it really tough for hitters. Um, the uptick in velocity has been good. I would say that's probably just more of dad strength than anything, you know, having a kid, <laughs> carrying him around the house. But uh, yeah, I've, gone, I've come a long way. Um, it's been a, been a lot of hard work, a lot of, a lot of work that DJ's put in behind the scenes to, to kind of challenge me at different things. Um, the way I stand on the rubber, how I look at different hitters when they step in the box, um, my homework I do in the, in the video room, all kinds of things that he's kind of, you know, really opened me up to to make me become this pitcher I am and hopefully continue to um, get better as a, as a pitcher on the, for the Brewers. But, you know, I, I want to be elite and I want to be a guy that can really, the team can count on every five days and to you know, hopefully carry us up, in, uh, up into the, you know, into that, um, to the playoffs. You've mentioned DJ a couple of times, and, and I think personally Derek Johnson is making a name for himself as one of the top pitching coaches in the game and maybe doesn't get enough credit nationally as he should 
I know I know that you would agree with that. He he has done a great job of developing guys when they get here. You know, we always think about development in the minor leagues, but there's more development that happens when you get here, and it right. continues even for veterans. And I mean, you've talked about it yourself. What is it about him that makes him so effective in helping guys find a different level, even after they've made it to the big leagues? He, he really preaches be great at what you're good at and continue to refine your craft because if you're not doing that, you're going backwards. and You're, not, you're, not, you're really not you're hurting yourself ultimately, but you're really hurting the team too. So he really preaches on us to continue to get better, um, and he brings new, new things to, to the table that I've never heard of when I got here in 16. Like some of the lingo, I didn't understand what he was saying, but now I know what he's saying Like because we've, we've built a relationship over three years almost um, of uh, different things he challenges us with, uh, how to hold a pitch, how to refine a pitch, um, what we need to do with, you know, with our hand, with our body. I mean, I mean, just there's so many things that he's he's taught me and introduced me to that I never even knew about in pitching. And uh, I was talking to some kids earlier today, and they were asking me about how I throw my pitches and all this kind of stuff. And I was talking to him. I was like, Man, I'm talking like DJ would talk a little bit. So I give these kids a little pitching lesson. But yeah, DJ's been great for a lot of pitchers. We look, you look, we have never had a so far. I haven't ever had like a Randy Johnson or a Kurt Schilling or Nolan Ryan. But you know, Jimmy, myself, Zach, um, Brent Suter. Uh, all the guys that have come up and filled their roles are evolving, and they've gotten better. Look at Jimmy, what he did last year. What a breakout year for him. And, and Zach, too, winning 17 games. And, um, you know, I'm just trying to do my part as, as being part of the staff. But he's really made us better pitchers. And we're able to, to be in this position now is because I think we're, we're becoming more of a complete staff. I mean, our bullpen's unreal. Um, but if our starters could continue to be successful and get six, seven innings every night, we're gonna. If we have a lead in the sixth inning, we're gonna win the game. And our offense is obviously uh, scoring a lot of runs. We at homers are gonna win. But DJ, yeah, he deserves a lot of credit for our, for our uh, our growth and uh, you know our success. Well, Chase, we appreciate it. Thanks so much. Great job again yesterday. Thank you very much. Appreciate appreciate Lane. Our thanks to Chase Anderson for giving us time today on Brewers on Tap. Let's go down to the farm. We're gonna check out the Brewers minor leagues. Checking in on the farm. As we go down on the farm, a quick run-through of the Brewers' records. They have really three teams right now that are all in postseason contention. The Colorado Springs Sky Sox in AAA are 49-39 and 39 overall. They're a game and a half up right now in the American Northern Division of the PCL. They're currently on their All-Star break, and Christian Bethencourt is going to be playing in the All-Star game in Columbus, Ohio. Nate Orff was also named to the All-Star game. But he won't be participating in it because he is now on the Brewers' 25-man roster. So the Sky Sox have a real chance at postseason this year. The Bloxy Shockers, we already know, are going to the postseason because the Shockers won the first half in the South Division of the Southern League. They are currently 9-8 and eight in the second half in the South Division of the Southern League. And it was Corey Ray hitting a solo home run, his 13th of the season, on Tuesday night in a loss for the Shockers. Class A Advanced Carolina is playing very good baseball in the second half. After going 34 and 46 in excuse me 34 and 36 in the first half, they're off to a 12 and 6 start in the second half. And they're getting some good performances from guys like Weston Wilson, Demi Oramaloy, and others. Cam Regner continuing to pitch extremely well for the Mudcats. And the Mudcats are going to be in contention. They're a game back right now in the Southern Division of the Carolina League. But they are right there to potentially make a push in the second half and get themselves into the playoffs. So the Brewers' top three levels 
all have a shot at postseason play this year. The Wisconsin Timber Rattlers are 7-11 in their second half. They went 31-38 and in the first half. And in the Pioneer League, the rookie Helena Brewers are 13-11 so far, while the Arizona League Brewers are sitting at 8-9. Now, one other piece of news to pass along to you. Luis Ortiz has been added to the SiriusXM All-Star Futures game roster. So, Keston Hira, uh, who is already a part of that, uh, going to be playing for Team USA. So will Luis Ortiz. Both of them will be with Team USA on the Sirius XM All-Star Futures game roster. And that game will be played on July 15th. So that's coming up on Sunday at Nationals Park. So you can look for that as well. That will be uh, televised, I believe, by MLB Network. So you can get a, a little look at the future for the Brewers in that regard as well. All right, let's see what's coming up. Here's what's on tap. All right, when the Brewers get home, they'll have the All-Star break, and then they'll be waiting for the Dodgers to come to town to open up the second half of the season. Brew Crew versus the Blue Crew. It's the 20th of July through Sunday, July 22nd. All three matchups are going to have some special promotions, so uh, you can be excited about that. First off, on Friday, that's a 7-10 start. Brewers strap back hat to the first 20,000 fans courtesy of American Family Insurance. And if you want, there's a special ticket package that includes a Brewers mug and two 12-ounce beer samples for the brew-off. Taylor Williams and Josh Hader brewing off against Bill Schroeder and Matt LaPay. They've already brewed their beers. You can taste them, see who you think made the better beer. Then on Saturday, uh, July 21st, it's the Dodgers again at 6:10, and then finishing up that series with the Dodgers on Sunday the 22nd at 1:10. And that Sunday game, the first 20,000 fans, courtesy of Impark, are going to get a Ryan Braun starting lineup figurine. Secure your seats today by visiting Brewers.com. Okay, that's going to do it for us. And episode number 125 of Brewers on Tap will be with you for an all-star edition of Brewers on Tap next week during the all-star break. Look for it then. Should be a lot of fun. I'm Lane Grindle. Have a great one, everybody. Go Brewers.